1: The path to reconciliation is one of listening, learning and growing together, a path that recognises the central place of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in our past and in our future. It is in that spirit that we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and pay tribute to Elders past, present and future. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, which is produced at the Australian National University's Crawford School of Public Policy and co-hosted by me, Sharon Bessel. I'm a Professor of Public Policy here at the Crawford School and Director
0: of the Children's Policy Centre. And beside you, Sharon, Anagreta Hunter, cardiologist, physician and a Human Futures Fellow with the ANU College of Health and Medicine. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod. I'm Anna Greta Hunter, and it's so great to be back in the studio with Sharon Bessel beside me. Sharon, how was your week?
1: Ana Greta, it, it's coming towards the end of semester. It's been a busy week, but it's a week where I've been looking forward to this conversation. Um, and we've, we've both, I know, been looking forward to this conversation for some time. It's Very now much. been six years since the Uluru Statement from the Heart was gifted to Australia by Indigenous leaders and community members from around the country and we're also at the beginning of Reconciliation Week. Later this year, we have an opportunity to make history and to move towards genuine reconciliation when Australia will vote on whether or not to enshrine in our constitution recognition of First Nations people in Australia by establishing an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. This is not the first time Australia has held a referendum that shapes the lives of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and shapes the soul of our nation. In 1967, a referendum was held on whether Indigenous people should be counted in the population and whether the Commonwealth should be able to make laws for them, as it was able to make laws for all other Australians. And that referendum sought to overturn some overtly racist elements of the Constitution. Over 90% of the population voted in favour of change. The 1967 referendum was a direct response to the racist values that underpinned the formation of this nation. And there are other parts of our history that we continue to ignore. Parts of our history that our guest today has described as the great silence. On this episode of Policy Forum Pod, we are so privileged to be joined by Rachel Perkins to talk about her remarkable documentary, The Australian Wars, which tell the real story of our history, not the story of white settlement as many of us learned in school, but a story of invasion, of resistance and of war, and the story of selective memory. And we'll also talk with Rachel about this moment in history that we find ourselves at when Australia has the opportunity to begin to genuinely reconcile with our past and to vote for an Indigenous voice to Parliament, to vote yes when the referendum comes around. Anna Greta, would you like to introduce Rachel to our listeners?
0: Rachel Perkins is a film and television director, producer and screenwriter, and a proud Arente and Kalkadoon woman. Rachel has directed a number of significant films, including Radiance, One Night, the Moon, Brand New Day and Jasper Johns, and of course, a number of documentaries, including The Australian Wars, which we will talk about more on this episode. She's also co-chair of Australians for Indigenous Constitutional Recognition, one of the most prominent YES institutions in the country. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you for having me. Rachel, The Australian Wars are a remarkable series. It's a landmark contribution to to Australian history. And whilst it can be a little challenging to watch, it's an incredibly powerful part of documenting our history and a part of our history that's been long ignored and really needs acknowledgement. You say in the introduction to the series that we now have a choice and ask if we are ready to honestly face the past that made our country what it is, or to go on living a lie. Can you share with us something of why you made that series and tell us a bit about the process of making it?
2: Although it took much longer than expected. It was meant to take twos, it took five. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was one of the very challenging um, projects, I think, just the uh, that I've ever done. I think the, the breadth of the material um, and having to siphon that down into, you know, about 120 minutes, actually um over 120 years <laughs> was one of its great challenges um 120 years being the sort of period of um overt frontier conflict um so that was a great challenge and i think for a story that is distressing and challenging um you know trying to um communicate that in a way that brings audiences in rather than pushes them away from some fairly confronting material was also a challenge. But um, I feel like having gotten through it, <laughs> through COVID lockdowns and all the other challenges that happened during that period, you know, I'm really glad to be out the back of it and and have done it um, and it to be there on the record for, you know, future generations of Australians to look at and understand because I certainly didn't benefit from that uh, information growing up you know as part of the education
1: system Rachel it, it really is remarkable and and I certainly didn't benefit from that in the education system either I grew up in Tasmania and the the kind of education that we got was a very very long way from the truth um that you've said that you hope the australian wars will help australians and particularly non-indigenous australians to come to better understand the aspirations of the uluru statement from the heart and we want to come to the voice in a moment But can we first talk a little bit about Makarata, the coming together after a struggle to supervise a process of agreement making between governments and First Nations people and and to tell the truth of our history? I think that for anyone who has watched the Australian wars, the importance of understanding and acknowledging our past is really clear. But for those who haven't watched us or haven't watched that series, can you share with us why we need to recognise the truth of the past in order to build our collective future? Why does that matter so much?
2: Well, I think truth matters in all of its all aspects of life, doesn't it? And um, and facing truth, it enables you to um, deal with the consequences of it, and um, hopefully move on and forge. You know, if the truth is a traumatic one, forge a new way of living or a new way of future, you know, in in acknowledging that truth. So whether it be a truth of a nation or a truth of a person, um, acknowledgement of truth is important. And in the Uluru Statement from the Heart, um, truth-telling is the third um, pillar of what Indigenous people have asked for, voice treaty truth being the um, sequencing that uh, was chosen for a very specific reason, um, voice being the first part, Makarada, which is a Yolungumata word, uh, meaning, you know, it's a ceremonial way of coming together after conflict. So a makarata commission to set up agreement making um, and then a truth-telling process would follow last. Um, and so in terms of the Makarada commission, um, that is inspired by the, um Waitangi Tribunal named after the Treaty of Waitangi in Aotearoa New Zealand and that commission is tasked with um meticulously documenting the history of um individual Iwis or nations or tribes or whatever word you want to use um uh, and the the um the relationship with the crown so it's a very um Uh, meticulous, process-driven history recording of the experience of Māori with the Crown and whether that aligns with the treaty um, agreement. And in some cases, the Crown pays reparations and a whole range of acknowledgements or apologises for past injustices. And so we hope that in Australia, eventually there is a process of this sort of um, thorough history um, analysis um, that Indigenous people and settler cultures can go through to understand our past better. Um, we've had that in other countries, and um, it's you know it, it happens every day in Aotearoa New Zealand. So it's overdue that it happens here, um, because we're one of the only Commonwealth nations who hasn't really come to terms with its past and its First Nations people, and that's why Constitution Enshrinement is such an important um, thing for our country to address.
0: It's a key thing for our country to, to address. Uh, and, of course, the Uluru Statement, as we've been discussing, helps us to identify that importance. The Uluru Statement talks very powerfully about sovereignty. It states the simple flat fact that Indigenous sovereignty has never been ceded or extinguished. And I'm wondering what kinds of conversations we should have about Sovereignty. Do you think we're heading in the right direction in parts of the country like Victoria and South Australia, where the treaty processes are underway?
2: Well, it's a historical fact that sovereignty was never ceded um, by Indigenous people here in Australia at the moment of British occupation um, and and any time since. There's never been a ceding of sovereignty because the ceding of sovereignty has to be. Done two ways, either through conquest, official warfare, um, or through agreement making. And uh because there was no treaty at the point of British occupation or since then, there's never been a formal agreement of um the, the, the transfer of sovereignty. So that's just a historical fact that um uh is a truth. And I think the High Court said that. Uh, sovereignty had been ceded through settlement, but actually, settlement isn't a way that sovereignty can be ceded. So, in terms of where we're heading, um, uh, I think that uh, you know we can look to other countries and examples of dual sovereignty and and what that means. Um, there's there's much you know work on this issue and many books written on this subject. Probably. We'd go into it in detail, but there's probably not a t- time on this show. But um, certainly, I think around the country, Indigenous peoples, through their nations, if you like, or language groups, are rebuilding a whole bunch of rights, um, and that might be, you know, native title rights, which give them rights over heritage matters, um, some rights over their land, but it's rebuilding Indigenous. Um, Cultural um, architecture, in a way, cultural and and sort of social architecture. People call it nation building, and that's 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 happening across the country. Um, and I think that that um, movement is only going to gain momentum, the strengthening of of people and their cultures and their rights to land um, and their sovereignty. So I think the future is very promising um, for Indigenous people. To sort of um, assert them, reassert themselves, um, coming out of the sort of colonial era that we are. Rachel,
1: one of the uh, Rachel, one of the the messages from the Australian Wars that I found so incredibly powerful is the extent to which the resistance of First Nations people to white colonization has been erased from history. There are no monuments, no statues very little written in history books and what has been written is often not truthful although we do have some incredibly confronting and compelling truthful accounts i'd love to get your thoughts on how we begin to speak truth and not only speak truth but to also make that truth visible in ways that are about that are both real and symbolic is is this about rethinking the way we present our museums—is it about the kinds of statues that we have in public places, or is it more than that? How how do we actually get both real and symbolic truth telling in place?
2: Well, I think it's about all of those things that you mentioned: um, public recognition in our cultural institutions and our collecting institutions who are tasked with holding the memories and reflecting back our culture and our history to average Australians. So whether that's the War Memorial or the National Museum or any state and territory institutions, they all need to come to terms with it um, and display it and actively collect and research it. Uh, I think that in terms of, um, you know, iconic public art, you know, we should see some sort of memorialisation of places and individuals who participated in the process. Um, and I think that we should also see, um, you know, a, a Macarada Commission that comes together and formally deals with the truth of this history because we don't want empty symbolic gestures. You know, symbols are important, recognition is important, You know, it means a great deal to me that the Aboriginal flag is more and more prominent in more and more places. But we need a sort of a systematic um, analysis of history and then a negotiation with the state about that history. Um, Because for Indigenous people, you know, um, the history is all around us, you know, and governments might change their stripes, but the government is still the same government uh, it's still the same state it still represents the crown and there's unfinished business um, with the crown in relation to Indigenous people and a whole range of issues so um, I think it needs to be all of those things all at once all together <laughs> and but I have great hope for that um, we're working now with the Australian War Memorial um, uh, and through a donor I've got some funding to write more of the history. Um, the government have put $5 million towards a treaty process. Um, so I think, you know, a Macarada Commission, I have great hope that that will come to fruition. Um, and uh, I think there's not a reputable historian in Australia today that would deny the existence of frontier wars. So, So really the academic world and the world of historians have really come to terms with this. It's just um, our political um, leadership which needs to really embrace it. I think if you spoke to people in the younger generation who are having better educated than older people are, they, they have no qualms with understanding the history of the country. I think people just hide from it for political reasons more than anything really. We have nothing to gain in hiding from our truth, really.
1: Rachel, I'd also love to hear your thoughts on if and how we should mark places. And in the Australian wars, you, you talk about and you take us to some places of terrible violence and massacres. um Lake George near Canberra, parts of Tasmania that you take us to. I wonder if you think those places should be marked, and if so, how? And perhaps the other part of that question is, should we also mark places of great importance for First Nations people that have really positive connotations? Are they things that the rest of the country should also recognise and celebrate?
2: Yes, absolutely. Um, I was on the Australian Heritage Council for a number of years, and when I joined that council, um, I looked at the sort of equity of indigenous places to you know European heritage and other settler culture heritage sites, and we were very minimal um the representation on the national heritage list, and I think that's reflected on state and territory heritage lists around the country which which ensure the protection of significant places to the nation so we need to get to a place of equity on those lists, of proper representation. Um, and uh, heritage councils have actually committed to do that, to get to a more equitable position. Um, so I think we'll see that change gradually over the next decade uh, of a growth of representation of Indigenous places, whether they be sites of conflict or whether they be sites of celebration. Um, people are actively now. Trying to rectify um, the inequality of of place based acknowledgement um, around the country, so I think we'll see that change. Um, uh, uh, yeah, over the next decade, because I think people, yeah, there's been a real push um, to change to change the record.
1: Rachel, I think that potential for change gives us such a potentially powerful way of beginning to reconcile the past, but also a really optimistic way to think about our future and to think about how we can build a collective future on a genuine recognition of what our history has been. There's much more that we want to ask you, and we do want to talk specifically about The Voice. We're going to take a very short break now, so listeners, please stay with us, and we'll be back in just a moment. Here's a cool fact.
0: Welcome back. We're here with Rachel Perkins discussing the Uluru Statement, truth telling, and her remarkable documentary, Australian Wars. We've talked about sovereignty and the importance of acknowledgement of the truth. And now we're going to turn to talk about the voice. Rachel, you're one of many extraordinary leaders in the Yes campaign for the voice, and we'd love to hear your thoughts on the referendum and what the voice means for all Australians. What do you think a voice to parliament would mean for Indigenous people, and what does it mean broadly for our country?
2: Well, firstly, I feel more like an Indigenous follower than a leader. Um, I mean, I've supported the process of the Uluru Statement for, you know, maybe I think eight years, I counted the other day. It's been not eight years full time, but over the past eight years. And um, I suppose my efforts have been towards continuing the push for constitutional recognition that people like my father were involved in in the mid-90s. Um, This has been a long-term aspiration for Indigenous people and um, my contribution has just been a part of that continuing push. Um, And I think that, um, you know, there's been lots of conversations about what form constitutional recognition should take, which, which have really intensified over the last decade, Um, And we've had a number of reports and we've had five prime ministers support that recognition. But it really wasn't until 2017 when Indigenous people met at Uluru after an intensive two-year period of meetings, you know, in 13 regions leading up to that national meeting at Uluru. It wasn't until then that um, really the what was constitutional or what would that recognition be actually like in the Constitution. It wasn't until then that the question really was clarified from an Indigenous point of view. And at Uluru it was decided that that recognition of our deep 65,000-year-old heritage and our First Nation status would be recognised through the mechanism of a voice. So we know that um, uh, there had been an attempt in 1999 with the Republic referendum to to give what's called symbolic recognition to Indigenous people in the Constitution. John Howard proposed that. He proposed it against the wishes of our representative bodies, the land councils and others, but he went ahead with it and like the um, referendum, uh, sorry, the quest- as with the question on um, the Republic, that question on symbolic recognition of Indigenous people wasn't supported at referendum. Um, so some have pushed since then for um, the recognition to be once more symbolic. Uh, some words in the Constitution that say Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have been in for a very long time, they have lovely culture or whatever, um, but Indigenous people have said, no, they do not want that symbolic recognition alone. They want a reform that is going to give them a say about their own affairs, um, which is what we call the voice. So um, that was a resolution unanimously put apart from you know 10 people who walked out out of 250 a very small minority was resoundingly accepted and since that time um, on a very reputable longitudinal study that Reconciliation Australia which is a government organization government funded organization the research tells us that between 82 and 86 percent of people still support that recognition through a voice so It's an overwhelming consensus from Indigenous Australia that this is what they are asking for in their constitution and very deliberately the Uluru Statement was written to the Australian people, not to politicians, because ultimately the Australian people are the only people who can change the constitution through referendum. And can I say that we put our trust (laughs) in the Australian people and our hopes in the Australian people because we We have had our trust and hope shattered so many times by government, so this time we're asking the Australian people for what is a modest request, an advisory body uh, to be um, cemented into the constitution.
1: Rachel, I think that um, the way you describe the Uluru Statement and and Anna Greta and I have in the past talked to Pat Anderson about the Uluru Statement and she also describes it in such powerful terms as as a gift to the nation. the way you describe the statement of speaking to Australians, I think is so powerful Um, and it gives us such an important opportunity to say, yes, we want justice. But I I wanted to to go back in history just a little bit. Um, You mentioned the work of your dad. Your father, Charlie Perkins, was an incredible Australian and among his many achievements and contributions to this country, he led the the 1965 Freedom Ride um, prior to the 1967 referendum. In White Australia's neglect of our history, I think that we've we we've given far too little attention to the importance of the Freedom Ride. And I wonder if you can just share a, a little bit about that critical part of our history with us, what the Freedom Ride meant then, what it meant for your dad um and for other activists of his time, but also what it means now as we move towards the referendum on the voice.
2: Uh, yeah, well the ref the um The Freedom Ride uh, was significant, I think, because as Jim Spiegelman, who was on the Freedom Ride with Dad, said it put Indigenous issues to the national attention of Australians for really the very first time. And um, it drew people's attention to the fact, if they didn't know it already, that Australia was very much a segregated society um, and that not only uh, was it segregated but Indigenous people were also subjugated um, and living in uh, extreme poverty um, on the fringes of white society. And I think that realisation, whether most people knew it or not, I mean, it's hard not to know it, um, but uh, having that put in the face of Average Australians, um, whilst there were similarly um, protests sweeping, you know, through the US, um, really sent the message that there was something wrong in Australia, deeply wrong, and Indigenous people faced great inequality. So I think that gave great momentum to the yes vote in Australia, um, our most successful referendum in 67, and I think for um, my father, it really catapulted him into the national, um, you know, uh, view, and he became a public figure overnight. Um, and I think he then used that platform. He understood the power of protest, and he continued to use that throughout his life um, to create change uh, But at the time of the Freedom Ride, he was going to university very deliberately to gain the sort of tools and skills that he thought would equip him to, um, you know, basically play the white man's game and get power for his people and change. Um, So it was a very conscious move for him to equip himself with the language of, um, you know, Um, power, and then after the referendum, he moved to Canberra to be at the heart of power and create change from the inside, um, which he then spent the rest of his life doing. Um, In terms of your question of what the Freedom Ride means now, I think um, it is a great example of non-Indigenous people and Aboriginal people standing together at a moment to point out um, and 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 rewrite um, the identity of nation. And I think we are at that moment again right now when every voting Australian, 18 million Australians, whether they like it or not, will be forced to, not forced, but they will be obliged because of the process of our democratic nation to make a decision about the, the rightful place of Indigenous Australians in this country. And so... Once again, uh, we are looking at that question in this country and, um, you know, it's a high stakes moment. There is the possibility for great change, but with that comes significant risk.
0: It it is an extraordinarily important time for Australia and reflecting on our history is an important part of recognising the opportunity that's been given to us. You uh, have just offered us a small amount of the extraordinary work that your father uh, did and he's left an extraordinary legacy, one that you've continued. It's remarkable to consider that time around the 1967 referendum and as you mentioned, of course, it passed with more than 90% of people voting yes. Yes. There was strong bipartisan support for it and at this point in time the voice doesn't have such a level of consensus. We see differences of views amongst Indigenous Australians and, of course, amongst the politics. How can we, indeed, I wonder can we create a unified position around the voice? What are you hoping for the next six months of the campaign?
2: Well, I think that um, I'm hoping that Australians, our fellow Australians, engage with this issue. Um, And I'm hoping that they take it upon themselves and feel that they have the permission and, in fact, encouragement from Indigenous Australians to do something about this. Um, Because Indigenous people didn't write this constitution. We are trying, though, to um, get it right now but we are a small proportion of the population. We are only 3.8%. So we need and require our fellow Australians to take responsibility in this moment and get this right. Um, So uh, I hope that Australians get informed. Um, I'm not telling you how you vote, but... um, because obviously you know how I'm going to be voting. <laughs> but um, And if you do support it, I hope that you actively talk to your people in your families, your social networks, um, engage them in the conversation and in a respectful dialogue, um, put the case for why Indigenous people should have recognition in this our own country and the highest legal document of the land, but that that recognition should allow us to have a say about the things uh, that affect us in our lives um, because we remain the most impoverished ethnic group in this country and we want to change that for ourselves, but we are unable to change it if governments, successive governments won't listen to us. We have the lived experience, we have expertise, we have solutions, we want government to hear us and they will only listen to us when the Australian people say... We are standing by our fellow Indigenous Australians and you must listen to them. So in a way, our fellow Australians' voice gives us a voice and so we want you to go out and fight for that voice. Um, So that's my hope. Um, But there are only 100-and-something days until this referendum, so time is short. It will probably be held in mid-October. So I encourage listeners, if they really care about this moment in time, if they really care about, you know, the position of Indigenous people, well, now you can do something. You can really do something about it.
1: Rachel, this has been an incredible conversation. That is such a a powerful message. As we move towards wrapping up this conversation, I, I wanted to ask you just one final question to sit alongside that that message to Australians to, to vote yes. And that is, if we if we do, and I think we all here hope that we will wake up the morning after the referendum and celebrate a yes vote, what will that mean for the future of our country? But in particular, what will it mean for future generations, for for young people today who are not old enough perhaps to vote in the referendum? What will it mean for the legacy that we leave them?
2: Let me say this first, if we wake up the day after the vote <laughs> and it's gone down, I really, I'm not going to be someone who's going to think I could have done more, right, because I'm doing everything I can. That's why I'm talking to you right now and I'm talking to people at a Chinese restaurant tonight and I'm talking to a group of young philanthropists this afternoon. I mean, I'm pretty much spending every waking moment working on this Um because i think it is so important because i think that to have the opposite happen to have the negative to ha- to not enable our country to take this moment will be a psychologically psychological blow to Indigenous people because it will be interpreted as a very personal rejection of them, I think, even though it may not be by people who vote no. They might just not want to change the constitution, whatever. But it will be, I think, and it's just my view, interpreted as that. Um, And I think for our our supporters and our, um, our national identity internationally, we will be seen as backward. It will be seen as a backward step. Because we we're often judged on our human rights record in relation to Indigenous people internationally. Um, but if it is a success, um, which I think it will be, um, then I think that it will relieve some of the unfinished business, this unfinished business that Indigenous people have been carrying, this sort of, I don't know whether you'd call it resentment, but Marcia Langton describes it as a burning desire for justice. Um, I think that it will in some way go towards acknowledging that and rectifying that, um, and it will also be for our fellow Australians, I think, a relief because finally there is some recognition that I think non-Indigenous people feel is so missing. I think that's where you see in all the acknowledgements of countries in schools and barbecues and dances and social functions and, you know, even when you're on a plane, uh, you get these acknowledgements of country. I think we have been making up for the lack of acknowledgement from our from the state, and um, so I think it will also in our fellow Australians will also feel some relief that um, the country made the right choice in this moment. So I think it will be a watershed moment. Um, it will take a long time for the voice to really have an effect. I think, but as time progresses, it cements the place of Indigenous people in the modern democracy of the country. And I think that can only be a good thing for the nation.
1: Rachel, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a fantastic conversation. We have what is, I think, not just a once in a generation, but a once in a history opportunity here. And it falls to us to collectively and individually say yes Thank you so much for joining us today and explaining so powerfully what a yes vote means. Pleasure.
2: <laughs> Thanks for having me.
0: Sharon, I feel so privileged to have listened to Rachel Perkins talking about both the extraordinary work she did with the Australian Wars documentary. And if, for listeners who haven't had a chance to look at that documentary, I highly recommend it. It's still available online and to also hear her thoughts on the voice and the importance of the upcoming referendum in, as she says, only 100 and something days. Her framing that what is being presented to the Australian population is a modest request is an extraordinary one and sits alongside Pat Anderson's observations that the Uluru Statement from the Heart is a gift to the Australian population. My heart breaks to think of how many times hopes have been shattered and I feel so deeply that it's time to get this done. I hope that these podcasts that we're creating with conversation around The Voice will help us to spark discussion so people are feeling informed, that we can share ideas, and that many of us will find ourselves out and fighting to get this done. But Sharon, I'm sure you felt the same inspiration. What were your thoughts?
1: Yeah, look, that was just a remarkable opportunity to to talk with Rachel um, I've watched the Australian Wars. I, I know that you have too, Anna Greta. It's a hard watch. Um, it's really confronting. I think for many of us who've who've read some of the truthful accounts of Australian history, we we know what has happened in the past, but to see it in the way that it's presented on the screen by Rachel um is incredibly powerful and incredibly confronting. Um But on The Voice, I think those comments that Rachel made are are just remarkable. That That comment that she made that for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, a rejection of The Voice will feel like a personal rejection. I think is such an important thing for us to keep in mind. This is personal. It is about the future of our nation, but it's also about us as individuals and the choices that we make. And I think we need to look inside our hearts and to think deeply about whether we are prepared to continue to live a lie, whether we are prepared to allow that great silence that Rachel talks about to continue, or whether we want to rescript our future in a way that is just and that is inclusive and that gives us the remarkable opportunity to say we are a country that has one of the oldest and most important cultures in the world for us to think about the kind of nation that we want to be. And I must say, Anna Greta, you know, I've worked on human rights and social justice issues for decades now, um, and a lot of that work has been international as well as in Australia. And when I'm overseas, I often feel the pain of talking about human rights issues elsewhere, but knowing that we have in Australia some of the worst human rights violations in the world, and they are issues that we cannot continue to be silent on. We've got an opportunity to begin to make a change, an opportunity, as Rachel said, to begin to deal with unfinished business and to respond to that burning desire for justice that Indigenous people feel But I think that burning desire for justice, that if we do look into our hearts, all of us in this country feel.
0: This podcast is produced by policyforum.net, and we'll leave a link to the publications and the sources that we've discussed today in the show notes. After the discussions we had earlier this year with Dale Aegis and Kate Orty and Helen Haynes, we've actually had a number of listeners contacting us to say thank you for promoting the discussion around The Voice and for giving some of our listeners more confidence to engage in the discussion with their friends and family. We know that today's discussion adds so much to that discussion and we hope that the conversations that we've hosted and will continue to host will help foster rich, inclusive conversations around the country that foster our best future, and a yes vote. If you liked this episode, don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date with our future episodes. And if you're feeling generous, please leave us a review. It's the best way for other people to find out about the podcast.
1: And we always love hearing from our audience. So if you would like to, please do reach out to us on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum. that's at APPSpolicyforum, or flick us an email at podcast@policyforum.net And we would love to hear your thoughts on today's conversation. And with that, it's all we have time for today. So from me,
0: Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. And from me, Anagreta Hunter, look forward to seeing you next week.